Welcome to Beatitudes, where your host, Dr. Kwamenich Sukina, will give you tools to experience wisdom in your everyday life. Listen each week as Dr. Kwamenich Sukina shares stories that will help guide your faith, perspective, and attitude in every situation. This is Dr. Sukina of Indigenous Messengers International, and here is our host. From David White on Vulnerability. Vulnerability is not a weakness, a passing indisposition, or something we can arrange to do without. Vulnerability is not a choice. Vulnerability is the underlying, ever-present, and abiding undercurrent of our natural state. To run from vulnerability is to run from the essence of our nature. The attempt to be invulnerable is the vain attempt to become something we are not, and most especially, to close off our understanding of the grief of others. More seriously, in refusing our vulnerability, we refuse to help we refuse the help needed at every turn of our existence and immobilize the essential title and conversational foundations of our identity. Welcome today. Today we're going to speak on be lamentable, therefore respectable, and lamenting as in grieving, mourning. Today's episode is going to be very challenging for me. I'm just going to start out with that because it was challenging to write it. It was challenging to read it over as I am smack dab, as they say in the South, right in my own experience, right in the middle with my own lamenting, a.k.a. grieving. My younger brother recently crossed the veil into eternity in July, and I planned and carried out the memorial service that we had for him this past November. Because I live away, we postponed the memorial until my children and I could be there. After he crossed over, I was marveling at how well I was handling the loss. Of course, I wasn't home. I wasn't there. I was in another place. My brain could kind of pretend like it wasn't happening. I cried the night that he passed, and I had a real spiritual experience that night while I was there. I felt the the veil between this life and the next thin. And I knew that he was going home, joining my mom and my dad and going across the veil. I cried the night that he died. (coughs) And I was very sad, but I was amazed at my ability to go on about my days, managing my sadness. During the weeks up to the memorial, I went through album after album. My mother was a picture taker. So we had album after album, the whole history of our lives in these photo albums. And I had and needed to go through them all with the help of my sister-in-law. I was out in California. They were in Tennessee, and she went through them with me. And we looked at them together, and then I would have her take a photo and post it to me. So there was not just my brother's life, but all 70 years of my life captured in albums. And there on those pages were my grandparents, my parents, my younger brother who've gone on across the veil, pictures of my young children who are now adults, and pictures of a young me, now all dissolved into the the word history, never to come again, loss. 
We were also selling our family homestead of 60 years, and I went through the boxes of things from my childhood home, choosing what I'd like to keep from the past, gathering some things for my children. They had asked me to do that for them. They wanted something to remember Nanny's house by and remember Nanny by. I walked through the empty house, and I recalled the memories because the house had been emptied of furniture at that time. It was on the market. And I went into each room, and I actually did a video of each room and talked about the memories in each of those rooms. It was so amazing because I could just see, I could see myself over those years, my siblings, my children in those rooms. It was so real to me. I thought later I'm going to do like a little video thing and then actually put pictures of the rooms when we were doing those things. And I handled it really, really well. But there it was again, loss. I was sad, but it was manageable. My handling it well lasted until my plane trip home from the memorial. On my connecting flight between Nashville and Phoenix on my way to Palm Springs, I had an anaphylactic episode on the plane, and I had to be stabilized. I, I keep my medicines with me at all times, but... I had to have oxygen, I had to, you know, I had to put, uh, I had to have my blood pressure, I had to have everything taken, watched over, even though I also know how to help myself, but when I was removed from the plane by paramedics, they whisked me off to the ER in Phoenix. And after arriving home, I had another trip to the ER, and since that time, I'm no longer handling, in quotation marks, it. I'm in the middle of it, and it is handling me. So much so that when I sat down to write this episode, I felt just fine, and one paragraph in, I felt this wave take, overtake me, which I know is grief, and it affects me in my body, not just my emotions. And i got to be honest with you, I don't like it. In fact, I hate it. But there's no way to run away from grief, especially if we love deeply and allow ourselves to attach to others and make them an important part of our lives. Grief is not a mental illness, nor is it something that we can get over. We can't go under it, we can't go over it, and we can't go around it. We must go through it. One of my friends spoke to me one time, and she said, Kwamini, grief is hard work, and it's necessary work, and it's good work. Grief feels different for each person. It's not always just in the emotional part of our bodies or, or ourselves. It's in the mental. It's in the spiritual. It's in the physical realm, not just the emotional. And when we're going through grief, and the emotional puts a demand and pulls everything out of the physical, everything out of the spiritual, everything out of the mental. And we find those areas of our lives somewhat handicapped during the process because grief just sucks up all the bit of energy into the emotional part of the brain. When my granddaughter Allie crossed the veil at age two, we found ourselves in the midst of just deep grief. As a faith-based person, it, it, I wasn't without hope, but but it was brutal, I have to tell you. We would gather at the dinner table at night. That was the hardest part of the day because that's when we all came together and she would be missing. And there was a feeling that we didn't want to move forward and make any new memories because she wouldn't be in them. We wanted to just be suspended there in time 
not moving into another day for the fear that we were, we were leaving her behind in some way. And it was just like the house felt like a morgue. And when you look at pictures taken of us during that time, our eyes are flat. It's as if the light has gone out of our eyes. Grief is a physical manifestation, not just an emotional one. And the loss of a child is gutting. We were shocked to find out that it wasn't just extreme sadness. That grief didn't just hit you that way. That it was also extreme exhaustion, extreme forgetfulness, and extreme dullness and flatness. There were times that in my grief I just feel dull. All the color drained out of our lives, and it became not just black and white, but very gray, very overcast. The grief was complicated with well-meaning people trying to cheer us up or try to get the focus onto something else, and, and these people were great. I mean, the, some of them hadn't been through this before, and they just hated seeing us suffer. It made it difficult at times to share our pain with some people for fear, for fear that they would want to try to fix us, and we were just unfixable. We were undone. You can't fix grief. In order to fix grief, if, if it could be fixed, we would have to go back in time and never have had that person or that experience in our lives. And most of us, no matter how painful it would be, we just wouldn't want to do that. We wouldn't want to lose that person. Garth Brooks sings it so well in his song, The Dance. And I heard this song right after Allie passed, and it, was, it just really touched me. And this is how the words go in it. And now I'm glad I didn't know the way it all would end, the way it all would go. Our lives are better left to chance. I could have missed the pain, but I'd have had to miss the dance. Grief is the price we pay for the dance. Grief is not only experienced from the loss of a person. It can also occur after a serious illness, a divorce, retirement, loss of identity, loss of position or security, many, many, many things. And sometimes these losses are so great that happen in our childhood, we, we develop an attachment disorder. We don't want to go through that pain again. So we won't allow ourselves to attach to others, and they feel that. Our children feel that. Our spouses feel that. Our friends feel that if we're unable to attach because we've been so deeply pained by it. We're afraid to ever feel that again. And we make inner vows. I will never love this way again. I will never feel this way again. But it blocks us off from joy and it blocks us off from the relationships. You know, relationships are risky and there's that price of risk we pay to have them, to have those people in our lives. So if you have an, a, a difficulty attaching, I want to let you know that it's important if you can to face that and to look in those, look back in those places and make the choice to attach again, to love deeply again. Because although the cost is great, the joy is exponential. Any loss can trigger grief, and sometimes a smaller loss can trigger a feeling of a larger grief from the past. We call that a trigger, and it can you know uncork something. When I go through things sometimes, it will uncork something from a different time. And, and then it's very confusing. I'll be like, why does this feel so bad? And I don't feel like this 
this thing was that bad. Well, when your reaction is like the size, like five inches tall, but the trigger itself was an inch tall, then you're usually in old pain. You're in old memory. You're in something that has triggered a deeper trauma. Those are opportunities and times for God to reveal to you the source of it and for you to return there with your higher power and be able to get that healed, to get help for that. In the situation of my brother's death with the sale of our family homestead, it triggered back the grief from my mother's death 10 years prior. This is what I was just saying. When he passed, it was like, I thought I'm doing fine. I'm doing, and then all of a sudden it brought up all the stuff with my mom and all those places that maybe weren't completely dealt with. And it made me miss her. My brother lived in the home with her. So the sale of the home and the dismantling of all the belongings brought up so many memories. I mean, picking up those items and feeling them and they had memories attached to them. They weren't just flat objects. It was the end of an era, too, for our family. The times we gathered together as a family there from the time I was a child, and then we all married and brought our spouses there, and then our kids came along. We brought our kids there. We had birthdays there. We had holidays there. We, we celebrated in that house. We had funerals. We lost people in that house. It meant something. And now... It was going to be gone, and it was going to be turned over to people we don't know, strangers. I've been shocked at how affected my body has been. The heaviness and the pain of the loss, it's made it really hard on my body, and the stress has exacerbated the autoimmune disease that I have, which explains what happened to me with the anaphylaxis several times. Grief affects the body in many ways. The systems in the body that process emotional and physical stress can activate the nervous system just as readily as physical threats can. Traumas, memories, when the burden is chronic, it causes physical dysfunction in the body. That's why it's so important for us to try to release our grief if we can. I mean, it's really scary for me, guys. I don't like the feeling of being out of control. And I'm always afraid I'm just never going to stop crying or I'm just going to get stuck there or I'm going to get into depression and get in a hole and I can't get out of it. I have to go against that in order to release the grief and get through that process. Grief can cause many of the same symptoms of physical illness. It causes nausea, dizziness, extreme fatigue, headaches, fast heartbeat, shortness of breath, tightness in the throat or chest, weight gain or loss, changes in appetite, sleeping too little or too much, and, and not have, being able to sleep at all, little or no motivation. At times I feel like I'm walking through molasses. That's the only way I can say it. Thoughts become confused, the mind ruminates, and memories flood the brain. It's like a brain overload. Crying spells are common, irritability or aggression, loss of interest in things that we used to enjoy. It puts a strain on our immune systems, making, making us more vulnerable to infection and other illnesses and causes inflammation. And that can worsen our medical problems that we already have. And this explains, like I said, the increased anaphylaxis from my autoimmune illness. Rabbi Brian states in his work on grief, when you are mourning, emotions and memories come in waves. 
Ocean waves come and leave of their own accord. You cannot control the waves of the ocean. Neither can you control the waves of emotions or memories when you are mourning. At times, emotions will be overwhelming and take you without warning. You won't be done until they are done. It's the same with memories. Memories you didn't even know you had may arrive seemingly from nowhere. And again, like the waves, you're not in control of them. These waves will come and go according to their own course of time. Heavier and harder in the beginning and lighter in the future. But for today, you do not need to look to be anywhere but where you are. I keep having to remind myself during this time to be kind to myself, to be gentle with myself. There's a push to get through and over this as quickly as possible because it's just so blasted uncomfortable. And at the same time, it also is pain with a purpose. And it's a pain that's shaping my future that will be coming on the other side of the pain. For me, grief just makes me feel very powerless and out of control. It feels a lot like when I'm nauseated and have a virus and I need to throw up and, oh my gosh, I just want to throw up so bad. And finally you throw up and you feel better for just a minute and then it builds up again. That's what the grief is like for me. It makes life feel very fragile and that adds to my feelings of vulnerability. And then I feel grief profoundly in my body and sometimes I don't even feel the feelings of sadness with us. I just feel this stuff in my body and that makes me feel kind of crazy because I don't have anything to detach it to. And sometimes I just feel sick and empty in my body. And the fact that I'm not feeling sad makes makes it hard because I'm like, I don't connect it with the loss. Most of us are so resilient. We go through things. We just expect ourselves to jump back in, get back up. Even in our faith-based institutions, we really don't. Times of mourning are pretty short in our, in our culture these days. We have to go back to work immediately. We have to jump right in back into things. And we're not even out of shock yet when that happens. You know, there's seven stages of grief that, that we go through. And, and the grief is not just, I said, like when someone dies. It can be a lot of things. I'm grieving a lot of things right now. You know, I didn't get to go on two of my ministry trips because I wasn't well. And I had to post, I had to postpone them because I was grieving and it affected my body. Um, as you age, you start, you know, I, I wanted to go back to Israel and I'm, I've aged out of Israel. It's not wise for me to go there now with what I have on board to deal with. My husband has cognitive issues he's dealing with and stuff from his cancer surgery, and I'm needing to be around more. Um, my, my kids, you know, our kids, adult kids grow up and don't need us anymore. There's so many different things. We can have an illness that causes us to have to redefine ourselves. Uh, we can have a loss of finances, a loss of job. But just there's so many ways that grief finds its way into our lives and and it doesn't always make logical sense and what is what can throw us off kilter will might not bother someone else it's not comparable we can't compare it to someone else's grief or pain it just is ours these are the stages shock and denial and in stage of shock and denial we most of the time just feel numb and have trouble believing that what happened really happened. You know, I just read a, a, an accounting of when Prince Harry's 
mother had passed when he was a young child. He, he thought for years she was going to come back. He believed that she was hiding out somewhere from the paparazzi and that she would send for them. That is what shock and denial does. It sets these things up in our mind. Sometimes we just can't even believe. We just can't believe that it's even happened. And the shock really protects us. And I, I would say that's probably what I was in right after my brother passed, is that when I felt like I was handling it so well, is that I was in that shock phase and denial phase. And it's almost like having a bubble around you. And when the people first come to see you at the, you know, when you're having a funeral or a memorial, you're still in that phase. So you can look like you're really handling things great and taking care of even everyone else. You know, but that's the stage of grief. And God allows that. He, that's allowed by God. It's built into our bodies so that it doesn't come on so fast that it destroys us. The shock is the protection to our emotions. And during this stage, we'll also experience, we'll still experience sadness and confusion and discomfort and mourning. But the, but the shock and denial that's there, it bu buffers that to a degree. Now in stage two, which is the stage of pain and guilt, as we begin to feel more due to the shock is wearing off, we'll often feel suffering and unbelievable pain during that time. And, and it can be really excruciating and, and, and almost unbearable at times. It's best not to medicate it if you can or and, and try not to escape it. Sometimes we have to have some medical, uh, medical intervention if it's that difficult that our bodies want to shut down. But during this time, there's a lot of feelings. There's a lot of feelings of sadness and desperation and guilt and feeling betrayed and feeling like we let the person down. I remember when my granddaughter passed, my grandchildren were young. Um, when Allie Nicole was two, her brother was three and a half. And all the children, the oldest was only, I think, 12. And I was living at the house at the time. And every single one of us in the house felt guilty. We all felt like it was our fault in some way. We should have prevented it down to the three-and-a-half-year-old. He thought it was his fault. That shows you it's not logical. It's a trauma brain, and in the trauma brain, many times we'll be accused of not being enough, and the enemy will come in at that time of vulnerability and try to blame us. And, but in this time of that stage two, we can have a lot of guilt. It's really important during that time to be kind to ourselves and tell ourselves, this is not my fault. This is not my fault. In stage three, which is the stage of anger and bargaining, it's natural to want to lash out during that time and place the blame on the person. You know, I can remember think I can remember the the little children saying, "Why did Why did Allie do that? Why did she go out there?" You know, there's that tendency for us to. And then we blame the pool that, you know, as a person that said, I'd, I'd just ripped that pool up like it was the pool's fault. Or, or we would blame the weather. We blame ourselves that that day the gate swelled and the lock didn't latch. The gate swelled in the heat. You know, we had to come to terms with that. God knows, he knows our days and he numbers them. And we didn't do anything wrong. And it wasn't the gate's fault. It wasn't the pool's fault. It just happened. And during this time, we have to really work on not feeling resentment and anger and even rage. In stage four, which is the stage of depression, we finally realize the full price of our loss. We get it. 
it's hitting us. This person's not going to come back. And this is what I miss. This is the, this is the price. And we don't just feel the, what we call the immediate losses, but we feel the perceived losses. When Allie passed, we had to realize we'd never get to see her lose her first tooth. We'd never get to see her go to school. We'd never get to see her. She wasn't completely potty trained. We would never get to see her go to her first prom. We would never get to see her at at her wedding. We would never get to see her at, at the birth of her children. Those are perceived losses, and all those had to be grieved as well. And they come at different times, and they overtake you when you least expect it. And that's why we have to be so gentle with ourselves. And during this time, you will feel like, you'll think, am I just losing my mind? Am I in a depression? Am I? Grief is not a depression, but it does feel just like a depression. Um, it's, it's the dark night of the soul, and it's very challenging time. And we can feel heavy and crushed and frustrated and stuck. This is the time we would feel stuck. And this is the time we need people around us to affirm us and let us know we're not going to get stuck there. You're going to come out the other side. You know, just like God calls Lazarus out and said, come forth. You know, he's going to call us out too, to come out the other side of that tomb. Because we're going through the valley of the shadow of death. And that's not an easy walk. Sometimes it's a crawl. In stage five, we have an upward turn and our life becomes calmer and we start to readjust to the life before the loss. This is where we begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel or, or, the, or we see God move the stone from the tomb. And we realize we're, we may just get through to the other side. There might just be life after this for us. We may get to feel joy again. We may get to actually look forward to something. We may actually have motivation again. And and we don't have to feel guilty about that. In stage six of reconstruction and working through, we become able to rebuild our lives in a newer way without the loss at the center and forefront of our minds. You know, we'll we'll still probably have a sense of sadness. There'll always be a place there. People are irreplaceable. Situations, experiences, there'll be a a place there. But the gut-wrenching pain will abate. We'll be able to look to the future and plan again. This doesn't mean that we return to the selves we were before our loss. It means we discover a new and equally significant self post-trauma. We're new. We're different. We can't unexperience ourselves. We can't just pop back and act like that never happened. We are profoundly changed. We are a new creation. Why in the world, with grief being so brutal, do we have to go through it? I've asked that before. Oh, God. When I'm in my closet where I go, I have a little place I made for myself to go when I'm struggling and grieving, and it's, it's my walk-in closet, and I have a blanket in there, and I have a bl- that blanket some of my friend, one of my friends gave me, and then I have blankets from my grandchildren, and I have a pillow, and I have a box of Kleenex, and I have my headphones, and my I either listen to worship music or regular music, and sometimes I listen to breathing to help me breathe. Sometimes I just lay there raw and just cry. And I ask God, why in the world 
with this being so brutal, do we have to go through it? And I remember one time a friend of mine, her daughter had passed, and she said when she came through to the other side, she felt like that she had climbed through a bunch of briars, and she got out the other side, and she made it through, but she had all these puncture places on her, and she'd been scratched up. And I remember my, I remember Allie's mother saying to me, I just can't even worship right now. I just feel like I don't have anything. I'm just so empty. I don't have anything. And I looked at her and I said to her, you know, the sacrifice in the temple, it was crushed. It was pounded and crushed. And then fire was set to it and it was burnt with fire. And that was the aroma, that is the aroma that's pleasing to Yahweh. And you have been crushed and you are being burnt in the fire. You are the worship, my friend. You are the worship. You are a pleasing aroma to Yah. Why has the Creator allowed grief to be in our lives? Well, in short, because grief is a form of honor. When we grieve the loss of a person, our bodies and our psyches are saying to us, this person was so valuable. This person was so irreplaceable. This person is so worthy to be mourned, for they will never be here again this side of eternity. This experience was so precious. This gift of my body was so valuable. Whatever that is that we're having to let go of, it's worthy of being mourned. The same is true when we mourn a time in our life, our bodies before they aged, a marriage that was hoped to be that never came to fruition, a life we planned that was thwarted. The reason we mourn is that we've lost something that was of value to us. A pearl. A pearl of great value. And to mourn for that is honorable and it's noble. Let me say that again. To mourn is honorable and it's noble. It is well worth the time and grief. And grief will see that it gets the time because grief is somewhat demanding. Rabbi Brian states that pain is in direct proportion to your love. So scream, cry, wail, weep. Be sad. Be very sad. Your dear one has been taken from you. Grief is love with no place to go. Grief is the final stage of love. When we lose a loved one, we lose a witness to our own lives. I must remind myself during this time that it's okay not to be okay. I was talking to my I have a trauma therapist. I'm studying trauma therapy to help people, and I have a trauma therapist. And I was saying to her, you know, about just, you know, I just want someone to tell me sometimes it's going to be okay. And she said, well, I could do that, Kwamanit, but, you know, it's really okay not to be okay. Are you okay not being okay? Is that okay with you? It was like, well, I guess it's going to have to be. Because as I age, I have less on board to be able to make myself okay. And these things that happen to us in life that knock our feet out from under us, 
their opportunities, their dress rehearsals for when we get to be elders. If we live long enough, we're going to get to the place that we're just not in control anymore and we're just not okay sometimes. So I'm practicing now in, in learning how to be okay with not being okay. The process can be frightening at times, and if we've had traumatic events in our lives, like I have, it can unearth some of those feelings of trauma, and that triggers us, and it takes us back to those places where God can heal those places. It's okay not to be okay. It really is. In Judaism, the foundation of the Christian faith, it's taught that honoring Respecting and caring for a person who has died is one of the greatest mitzvot commandments. You know, in the olden days, we cared for and, and we prepared the bodies of our, of our own family members when they passed. And then we put their bodies in the parlor and people came by the house and we, had, we were with them there for several days. And so it wasn't like it was this thing where they cart your person off and then they embalm them and then you see them, then they're gone. We were in the process. We are so separated now from death that it, is, it, has, Im, it has impaired our grieving process. We, we can't do the hands-on that we used to do. In the Jewish faith, the family and friends of the deceased sit shiva, where mourners gather for up to seven days to mourn with the family. During that time, many refrained from haircuts, shaving, laundry, washing and grooming, and wearing leather shoes. They also pull away from business, as usual, to properly mourn and honor the life of the deceased. We usually have about three days. Everybody comes together, but they come to certain like from, come from five to seven, and <laughs> we need more time to go through these processes together. And if we don't take the time, our bodies will make sure that grief gets the time. The Jewish people also tear their clothes on the death of a loved one. This tearing is an expression of pain and sorrow and that their hearts are torn. But it's also that the body is like an earthly garment that houses the soul and that the soul never dies. So when that garment is torn, the soul comes out. These rituals, they're done in the physical that allows the body and the psyche to adjust to the loss. In First Nations, the people mourn for a year in some of the tribes, and they have a, at the end of the year, they have a wiping of the tears ceremony. But they're, they're given a year. How much time do we give ourselves? We just expect to bounce back. As I sat down to write this episode, I felt this wave of exhaustion come all over me, and this churning in my chest that I'm waking up with daily upon opening my eyes. Right now, I wake up with this grief, and I, I have to go to my closet. I have to lay there, and I have to allow God to work with me and work on me so this doesn't become stuck in my body and turn into something that's going to not be healthy for me. God will help us to do that if we'll take these things to him. But I also couldn't think clearly enough to even write at that point. So I had to stop what I was doing, go lay down, and just be. Immediately, I felt some of the same physical symptoms 
of my body's responses to grief. Now, this may sound funny to you, but when I sat down to write this on grief, I was so cognitively in my brain, I was shocked that I had any reaction to it. But my body knows. As soon as I typed the first paragraph on grief, my body started grieving, <laughs> started acting out. And I wanted to whip it back in shape so I can get this done. It doesn't work that way. And the grief came. And yes, it came like waves, uncontrollable, very uncomfortable. And those waves wash over me, and at times it feels like I'm going to drown. Those of you who've been through losses of children or losses of loved ones or deep things of grief, you understand what I'm think, talking about. We, you know, when, when Allie Nicole died, it was like we were thrown into this big river and there was no way to surface. And we were at the bottom of the river. It was kind of like being in a cave under a river. We could not surface. And I kept looking for a way to find a way out, a place to swim to. And it, it dawned on me I was never going to get out of that river that I was going to have to believe that I could breathe water. And I knew that God was going to have to allow me to grow gills so that I could breathe in, even in the depth of this pain, in the depth of the waters, that he would create me to be a whole new creature with gills, spiritual gills. But you know, we don't drown. But instead, he does these processes on us. He transforms us. And that allows us to breathe in the depths of the waters, the depths of mourning. And it says in his word that the waters will not overtake us. That's what he's talking about. It's miraculous. Some of you who have lost people and grieved in your lives thought you would not live through it, and you did. It is a miraculous thing that happens when you come through grief to the other side. But you can't go through that and not be transformed. You're forever changed. And that's not bad. I write this episode in the midst of that process for myself. I'm, I'm being totally transparent here with you. When I read this back before I wrote it, uh, before I, I'm doing it with you, I read it. I, I wept through it the whole thing. I thought, I don't know that I'm going to be able to do this without weeping, but I have been able to do it without weeping, but I did weep writing it. And, um, I'm going to say this because this is my life, the essence of my life. I have a life that has suffering in it, has great joy in it too. But, um, this episode that I'm leaving for my children and grandchildren, and I'm giving to those of you, I write it suffering or I say, I wrote it, suffering. Maybe I should say it this way. I'm speaking it, suffering. I'm speaking it in pain. As I speak it, I'm profoundly sad and broken. And as I'm speaking it, I'm scared. I'm speaking it scared because the intensity of the grief experience for me is heavy and the enemy always tries to lie and tell me that I will never get over this grief and I will be stuck here forever and that is a lie. God has promised me beauty for ashes so I dare to trust. 
I dare to believe. I dare to continue to live as I cry out to the Creator for His provision as I crawl through the valley of the shadow of death. And some days it feels like I'm crawling. I, I thought the other day, you know, there's a scripture I've thought, you know, this podcast, I've birthed this podcast in a time when I was really struggling and going through a lot. And that scripture came to me, who bore me these in my time of grief? It's a scripture about Rachel weeping for her children. Who bore me these in my time of grief? There are times that God takes our lives and he births things during our time of grief. Grief cannot destroy us because when our lives are out of control and we are powerless, he is in control and he is all powerful. He is our high tower. And when our hearts are overwhelmed, it says he leads us to the rock that's him, which is the foundation of our faith. He is the rock. We can and we will come through grief. You can and you will come through grief to the other side of your loss, of my loss. And we will be restored through the power of the Most High. He is a good God. And he loves us. No matter what we're going through, if we can settle those two things, the enemy will come into your life and accuse God and accuse you and threaten you and just decide ahead of time, God is good and he loves me. Hospice International has listed some things that we need to do in order to cooperate with our healing process. And I want to read those some. I want to read some of those to you today because I want you to have some tools if you're going through grief. And all of us are going to go through grief sometime, so maybe some of you will come back to this years later or whatever. The first thing you'll need is time, and that's what I'm having to work on now. I just had to cancel two trips that were very important to me, ministry trips and then trips to, with my family and things that were so important, they were so hard to do. But we need time alone we also need time with others we trust, people that will listen to us. And it takes time to feel and understand the feelings that go along with our loss. It takes time, and, and we just have to be willing to carve that time out. We need, we need to love ourselves enough and be kind enough to ourselves that we give ourselves some time. We're patient. We're not hurrying ourselves along, saying, hurry up, get over this, hurry up, get over this. I do that to myself and I'm trying to te learn to treat myself like I'm somebody else. I want to be as kind to myself as I am to my children, my grandchildren. The other thing is rest, relaxation, exercise, nourishment, and diversion. We meet extra amounts of those things like hot baths, maybe an afternoon nap, take a trip, uh, get involved doing something nice for someone just not all the time, just something that gives you a lift, just to get out of your pain for just a minute. For me, it's working in my garden. I go out there and I plant something and I forget for just a minute, you know, and I'm able to do something and see something happen because grief makes me feel kind of stuck like nothing's moving, nothing's happening. Security, we need to try to reduce or help, get help for financial and other stresses of our life. We need to allow ourselves 
to be close to people we really trust. And if you don't trust people, don't try to be close to them right now in the midst of grief. You know, relationships are complicated and sometimes they're easier than other times. And the main thing is right now you need to be able to let down and you need to be able to trust. Um, you know, I talked to, called my, one of my adopted sisters, Mary, on the phone the other night. And I was in the midst of, I just said, can you be a witness for me while I weep? I don't want to weep alone. And she sat on the phone with me while I just wept. And at the end, she told me, she said, you know, you're so valuable to us. We're sorry you're not going to get to go on this trip and come see us, but we, we wish you were here, but we're glad you're taking care of yourself, and we just love you so much. You're part of us. I needed to hear that. We need that. So be around people you can trust. Another thing is getting back into our routine. So try to, I'm trying to have a routine. I'm, I'm, I'm not able to go to meetings and things right now, so I'm doing Zoom every Sunday with Graham and Mary and Crossroads Christian Fellowship because I can bop in there. It's a safe place. That gives me some structure. I'm in 12-step recovery. I'm doing my 12-step meetings. I'm trying to establish some structure that's helpful. And I have to do them at my own pace. We have to pace ourselves. Another thing is hope. We may find that hope and comfort from those who've experienced similar loss that they're able to go there with us. We don't have to explain so much. And it's good to have some of those people around us that can help say to us, you're going to get through this. You're going to be okay. Caring. We have to try to allow ourselves to accept the expressions of caring from others we have to receive. That's hard because that makes us out of control. But even though it's uneasy and awkward, it's just good to be able to allow people to come alongside of us during this time. Now, as far as our goals for a while, it's going to seem like life doesn't have much meaning in it. You know, so small goals are good, like I'm going to try to do my dishes today. I'm going to brush my teeth. <laughs> for me, right now, I'm taking a walk. I try to do it every day. Sometimes I'm not up to it, I'm doing it every other day. If there's things we look forward to, there's some things that might we not might might not be able to do. Like if you enjoy going to a movie or playing tennis or going even to your Bible study, you may not be able to do those things when you're dealing with grief. So don't be surprised, you know, if it's not the same. As time passes, you might need some guidance and some counseling to help get set get back into your life again. And don't feel like you can't do that. And then the small pleasures. Don't underestimate the healing effects of small pleasures. Sunsets, a walk in the woods, your favorite food. For me, I just enjoy laying down and, and, and listening to soft music and just remembering to breathe slowly. And I always think about that God put his breath in us. When we breathe in, we go, yah, like, And when we breathe out, we go, way, like, way. And so that's calming to me. And I enjoy that. So that's a good thing to have during that time. Grief support groups are also available and very helpful to offer support. And, and I'm getting ready to get involved in another one again. I'm going to start going because it just helps to be with other people. Um, and, and we're all grieving different things. But just having your that validated. When you're going through these feelings and, and they feel kind of crazy to you and, and, and so extreme, when you have someone else say, oh, I feel that too, then you're like, oh. I'm so glad you told me that. 
because I, you know, I feel like that too. So, the, so this is not terminal. No, it's not. It's just grief. It's grief, not just grief. It's it's big grief, but it's not terminal. I want to encourage you to reach out for support in your grief. There are hospice grief groups available. You know, and after I said, after I wrote this episode, I had to reach out to a trusted friend and, and I just had to share my uncontrollable weeping. Sometimes we just don't need to cry alone and, and we do need a witness to our pain. I want to end today with a raw and authentic poem written by a precious soul who's now on the other side of eternity. This poem is very raw. Two times I read through it, I, I cried through it. But I want you to be able to experience her in the midst of her deep grief and her deep pain and her deep loss. She penned something that's so very helpful to me. It helped me not be so hard on myself and not so religious. <laughs> and and I, it really rang true to me because I, spent, I have spent a lot of time suffering. I'm acquainted with suffering and alone suffering, laying on the floor, crying out to God for pain and just for his presence so that I wasn't alone in my suffering. This is from a, a young woman who had cancer who died so early. I think it was in her 30s. Her husband left her in the midst of her cancer. Uh, she was actually on television. She sang a song. It's a it's okay, You're, it's okay, basically she wasn't okay. It's okay, it's okay not to be okay. She's well known from her suffering and what she left behind all over the world. And she goes by the name Night Birdie. But her life was shortened, so she was grieving that. She didn't get to be a mom. Her husband left her. So much, so much loss, so much perceived loss in the midst of pain, incredible pain. But this woman had incredible joy. If you have a chance, go online, go on YouTube, look up Night Birdie. Look at some of what that woman left and what she did with her life. She embraced grief full face and bravely left her powerful words for us. She left them so they would impact those of us she left behind. So here are the wise words of Night Birdie, an intimate friend of God. I don't remember most of autumn because I lost my mind late in the summer. And for a long time after that, I wasn't in my body. I was a light bulb buzzing somewhere far. After the doctor told me I was dying and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, I chased a miracle in California, and 16 weeks later, I got it. The cancer was gone. But when my brain caught up with it all, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a physical head trauma, and my brain was sending out false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I spent three months propped up against the wall, on nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor 
became my place to hide. I could scream and be ugly, or I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I have cancer three times now, and I have barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God, that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that he did not know me. I'm God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands, Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I have called him a cheat and a liar and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Peers, tear, prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise, sunset. Call me bitter if you want to. That's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exile laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I'm sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one, I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us, and I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years... Their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me every morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means, what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees, in my mother's crooked hands, in the blanket my friend left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it's mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but will repeat until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden from me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy, and I can't explain it, but God is in there, 
even now. I have heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. If you can't see him, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. I want to dedicate this episode today to my brother James Bruce Stanley II, who bravely battled juvenile diabetes for 45 years. He is one of my heroes. And to my granddaughter, Allie Nicole Jarrett, who is waiting alongside my family, my brother, my parents, and all of those that we've sent on ahead across the veil. And I dedicate this to my future, my children, and my grandchildren. This is also dedicated to you. I bless you all. Thank you for listening to Beatitudes with Dr. Kwamenik Sukina. Be sure to follow the show for more tools on how to experience wisdom in your everyday life for you to walk in victory with the right attitude.